0: Hello and welcome to the 4 Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak. This week, my guest is Adam Shupak. Adam is a senior writer with GolfWeek and GolfWeek.com. And he was in Northern California last week at the Safeway Open where he had a chance to see Cameron Champ win his second PGA Tour event. So we talked a lot about Cameron and what we think is going to happen to his game over the next, say, 12 to 24 months under the tutelage of Sean Foley. Then we talked about Tony Romo and Steph Curry and other celebrities and athletes from other sports getting sponsors exemptions into pga tour events and what that means the pros and cons of that we talked a lot about phil mickelson and then we talked about roy mcelroy and the comments that he made after the dunhill links championships about european tour courses being set up too easy uh roy was obviously very frustrated by all that so here is adam shupak Hey golf fans, listen up. If you're looking for other awesome sport podcasts, the USA Today Network has got your back like a partner who splits fairways and drains 10 footers. The NFL season is rolling and college football is starting to really mean something. Plus, the Major League Baseball playoffs are going on. But sadly without my Chicago Cubs. But if you want to hear smart people talking about sports and trending topics, listen to Hemel Javeri, Steven Ruiz, and Ian Thorpe over at the For the Win podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other popular podcast apps. And if you like mixed martial arts, check out MMA Junkie Radio. As a matter of fact, you can see all of the USA Today Network podcasts, including podcasts about the NFL and the NBA, by going to podcast.usatoday.com. So before I bring Adam onto the program, I want to talk to you a little bit about driver testing and give you my takeaways from what was going on at the Safeway Open last week. As you may or may not know, the PGA Tour has changed its policy and its protocols about driver testing. Before, it tested for characteristic time, which is often referred to as CT, in drivers that are on the PGA Tour vans, though the vans that follow the tour players from event to event from the major manufacturers like paying and Callaway, TaylorMade, Titleist, etc. And characteristic time or CT is basically a measure of the springiness of a driver. It's measured in microseconds, and basically to determine CT. You put a driver into this machine, a pendulum swings a ball into the driver face at various places on the hitting area, and the machine and the mechanism the computer that's set up to it can measure very, very accurately how long that ball is in contact with the face. The longer the time, the greater the spring-like effect, um, but again, that is capped. So theoretically, the limit is 239 microseconds, but there's a tolerance that's built in that can be added on to that because it's a mass-produced product, and the USGA and the RNA, in their procedures, allow manufacturers to go slightly over that. And so, really, the hard cap, if you will, is at two fifty-seven. If you go higher than two hundred and fifty-seven microseconds, a driver is considered to be non-conforming and is illegal for play. So, the PGA Tour, after the Xander Shoffley incident that happened last summer. Um, at the British Open wanted to make sure that every driver was going to be conforming. They didn't want any piece or any repeat performance of that incident. And so the tour now at different events is going to randomly select 30 players who are going to have their drivers tested for CT. And at the Safeway Open, this is the first time that it was done. The tests are conducted by um, representatives from the USGA using the same types of machines that, that manufacturers also have for themselves. So the, the companies and their tour vans can test CT. The PJ Tour is going to test CT. Everything should, should work out well. It came out in a report uh, that was published on Monday from Reuters that five players, according to them, failed the driver test. And my first takeaway is that the headline that was used in that story from Reuters was really misleading and because it basically said... Um, and I'm quoting it directly right here, multiple player drivers deemed non-conforming on PGA Tour. Well, if you read that on Monday on a website, it sounds like players were using illegal drivers or non-conforming drivers in a PGA Tour event last week. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. If any player's driver was deemed to be non-conforming in the testing, it's immediately taken out. Players are not allowed to use it, and they have to come back before play starts on Thursday with the driver they intend to use, have that one tested, and make sure that it is conforming. So no one's driver failed, for example, after the fact. The subhead that's right underneath that headline is also really misleading. Several players were deemed to be using non-conforming drivers at this week's Safeway Open in California as the new PGA Tour testing procedure swung into full gear, Reuters has learned. Well, again, no one in competition was using a driver that had tested over the CT limit. That, That subhead as we sort of say in the biz, is really misleading. It's just, it's just wrong. So my first takeaway is that some media entities out there are misrepresenting exactly what happened, causing a little bit of a dust-up. It makes for a nice headline. And it causes confusion. It's really not accurate. Um, my second takeaway is that I'm not entirely surprised if some players did have drivers that ended up scoring over the CT limit because we are at the end of the year – Uh, It's now October at this point, and players have been using the same driver for just about a year now, and the the mechanism or what, what we have come to refer to as CT creep is pretty much acknowledged by everybody to be the real thing, and CT creep is essentially the fatiguing of the metal, the flattening of the driver face that takes place when people who swing really hard and fast hit a lot of drivers, and pros and people that you see on TV, professional players, they'll do that. They're hitting it in pretty much the exact same spot with a lot of speed. And over time, the characteristic time of their driver, which started out as being conforming, can very slowly increase to become non-conforming, theoretically. And if you get a bunch of guys at the beginning of the season hitting a club, it could be safely conforming. And over the course of months, where they're hitting hundreds, if not thousands of drives it can slide towards non-conforming. That doesn't mean the players are cheaters. That doesn't mean anything. It just basically means that the club is wearing out. They may or may not be aware of that. The way that the testing protocol is set up, it, it should pick that up and catch them. And if, if that's the case, they take that club out of play and a conforming driver comes in there. I'm not the least bit surprised. As 2020 product starts getting seeded onto players in the PGA Tour on the PGA Tour and they start to use it in practice sessions and things, Once we flip the calendar and get into January, February, I think that the number of non-conforming drivers nosedives because everybody's going to be starting with something that they know was conforming to begin with. And there hasn't been enough time for CT creep to really become a thing. But this may be something that is cyclical towards the end of each summer and in the fall, we may end up having every year this discussion about CT creep coming in and a few guys getting picked off or using non-conforming drivers because the CT creep process kicked in. A year's worth of wear and tear on their driver has fatigued the metal and has gotten them to that point. My third and final takeaway is that there is no transparency and no official information being circulated by the PGA Tour about the testing procedures, even in some cases to the players. It was really interesting to learn that the players, when they give their drivers over to the PGA Tour, really to the USJ officials who are doing this on behalf of the PGA Tour, they're not actually given the CT value. They're given a color code: red, green, yellow. The green means you're below the the CT limit. The yellow means you're over the limit but within the tolerance. So in both of those cases, you're totally fine. You're playing with a conforming club. Here it is back, and good luck. If your driver tests over the limit plus the tolerance and is deemed then non conforming, it is not eligible for play. It's basically taken out, and it's the player's responsibility to come back with a driver that that will fit but the players are not given the exact number. So let's say for example you get a yellow the exact number is 240. You're you're one you know tiny little bit over, one microsecond over the limit, but safely within the tolerance. It's it's a different story than if you were somebody who hit, you know, tested to a 255 where you're really close to the limit, potentially in danger of going into the red zone. If I was a player, I'd sure as hell want to know about that. If I was a manufacturer, I'd want to know about that too, because that's going to also help me learn about metal fatigue and the drivers I'm creating. It's going to make me make better products down the line. For whatever reason, the PGA tour last week was not sharing that information with players. You were either green, yellow, or red. So very odd. Obviously also there's a lot of wondering when it comes to what players were tested and, potentially who had problems or who failed. Now, again, in that Reuters piece, they went out and basically said that that it is thought that certain players had failed to t- the test, um, that I-, I couldn't believe, to be honest with you, that they actually printed it this way. It was really a tragedy. It is believed that, and I'm not even going to name the players, it is believed that these five players were among those players whose drivers did not pass the test. It's It's perpetuating or it's creating a climate where rumors... Are going to spread about certain players, and that's not fair. Um, it's one of those things where, if you're going to create a system like this to test, why not go ahead and make sure you let everybody know we tested these players, these guys passed, these guys initially didn't pass, but on the retest, now they did. So, everybody who was involved this week who came up randomly, we can assure you the driver they're competing with today, Thursday morning, when they're teeing it up in competition. It is absolutely a conforming club. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We've checked it. Done. End of story. When you have a lack of information and you have a vacuum, it's going to get filled with whispers and things on the driving range. Little whispers around the punny. Hey, did you hear about that guy? I don't know. I I heard it was was eight or nine players failed this week. Really? Oh, wow. Things like that happen. Small world. And unfortunately, sometimes those things get reported, even if they're not fact-checked out. Players can be named. Even if they are or they are not, we, we don't know if officially like any specific player failed the test. No one's come out and, and laid claim to that, that I'm aware of. Um, so you're creating a climate where it is ripe for rumors to spread. And in some cases, rumors are going to be wrong. And that is going to name a player who is innocent of having any issue um, being named. And it's, it's just a bad scene all the way around. Why not be transparent about this? It's this I feel the same way about player fines. Why are we protecting people like this, every other sport, you know, Hey, such and such guy gets a, gets a fine for whatever it is. Um, for whatever reason, golf just has, we want, we want to live with our heads in the sand. We commit no sins. We don't do any fouls. We don't give any fines. We don't, we don't talk about bad news. We just pretend it doesn't happen. And this is another one of those instances where something like that goes on. So I will now get down off of my soapbox and I am much more looking forward to talking about good things with Adam Shupak than I am more about driver testing. So without any further ado, here is Adam Shupak. And I'd like to welcome to the program, Adam Shupak, Adam Shupak returning to Golf Week Magazine and Adam, welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the Ford Press. And uh, where are you? You you sounded before we I hit the record button like you were a little under the weather. What's going on, Shupi?
1: No, just early in the morning, out on the West Coast. Uh, you know, great, great time, <clears throat> great time being here in uh, the Bay Area for for you know Napa for a PG- Is your a tongue P-J-Torce. purple?
0: Admit it. Is your tongue purple it, right
1: now? I uh, can neither confirm nor deny that.
0: Which means that's a yes. Okay, thank you very much. So, uh, did you partake of the grape? Shall we say?
1: You know when when in Rome, right? I mean, uh, I love coming out to Napa, and, and the Safeway Open was uh, as good as it gets, I think. I mean, really one of the best best stories in golf. Uh, of, I don't know the, that I got to witness this year with
0: Cam yeah, Champ
1: winning in his backyard like that, and, and his his grandfather uh, in hospice back in in Sacramento. Boy, all was, all I mean, good it, stuff
0: and all worthy storylines, and I want to get to every one of them, but I'm not letting you off the hook. Um, I'm assuming that since you were in Napa at some point, wine was tasted. Where did you go?
1: Yeah. So I did, I did make a few pit stops as I made my way back to, uh, San Francisco yesterday. Uh, my wife and I went to the Frank family for a tasting. Sure. Very good. Mm -hmm. Strong. And then, uh, tried alpha Omega, really beautiful setting for that. And, uh, and then, uh, oh, you got to – the food is so good too. So yeah. on the, we got to have some lunch at Mustard's Grill, um, one of my favorites in that area. Okay. And, uh, you know, you just can't go wrong.
0: She'll be looking forward to eating for free the next time he's in Northern California at Mustard's <laughs> Grill. You know, not <laughs> not afraid to make a plug. Good. And do I have this right? You, being a Colgate man, were able to, to have a brush with a little bit of, of Colgate, legendary history basketball player stuff what, what's going on with that
1: yeah yeah whenever I come to town one of my one of my real close friends still is a Donald Foyle I wrote his coattails to uh getting to broadcast two NCAA tournament appearances by the Red Raiders when I was uh attending the school there back in back in the day as I like to say and uh yeah he you know it was, he had a a real good career out here with Golden State back yeah. in the days when uh they were i mean he, he was that's before really the splash brothers
0: and everything really sort <laughs> of <to> kick <laughs> yeah. in they were they were not yeah. he he was a good player on bad teams if i recall
1: he he's got uh i think he still owns the the uh block shot record for the team okay career block shots um but yeah he was on some bad teams uh but does have a couple rings from working in the front office the last several years and uh which which are pretty nice and and they still count, I guess, right? I mean, rings are
0: rings, as far as I'm concerned. If you've you got if you've got a ring, you've got a title, and I, I would sweep the floors for them after practice if that meant I got a ring and a title. So I, I don't care. Congratulations to him, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, where are your Colgate Red Raiders and my Saint Lawrence Saints uh, are, are heading in college hockey later, which can be nothing but up because both teams suck last year. Um, <laughs> but let's get back to talking about Cameron Champ. That was. That was really good stuff up at Safeway. You were there. Tell me what you saw and what you heard.
1: Well, you know, he, he's he's got so much talent and the expectations I think just got really big for him last year. I think it was a case of where he, he started to buy into some of of his own press clippings where people were comparing him to Tiger Woods. That you know, he won he won in his second event at the Sanderson Farms, had a couple top tens thereafter. But he hadn't done anything. I mean, he could not crack an egg during the summer. Uh, the one time I felt like, oh, okay, maybe he's turning the corner was at Detroit, where he got off to a good start. Yep. Was uh, I thought he like we had a fifty nine watch on the guy, and before you know it, another t forty, and he just he just uh, really seemed lost with his game. But it all kind of came together this week. Uh, you know, i said earlier, his father, his sorry, his grandfather, the man who introduced him to the game, Mac Champ, in hospice with stage four stomach cancer and his his parents just told him that he went up that that is that mac was in hospice when he got back home last sunday uh a week week earlier Mm -hmm. uh when he got back from defending his title at the sanderson farms they didn't want to to put this additional pressure on him, but having this situation uh, a life-threatening situation i think you know listening to cam talk about it it put everything in perspective that golf at least for this week, was not that important a thing. He almost didn't even play. He considered skipping to spend time, and he was commute in the beginning of the week, commuting back and forth to Sacramento to spend time with Mac. And, you know, it it freed him up. And we, we all know he can hit it. He can hit it prodigious distances. I mean, incredible length off the tee but his his short game, everything inside of 100 yards, he needs still a lot of refining that part of the game.
0: Yeah, there's a yeah, lot of work that this, needs to happen there, for sure.
1: Yeah, this week though, it all clicked because he was he led the field uh in stroke's game, tee to green, he was number 1 in scrambling. You add that in with the, you know, being number 1 off the tee and wow, that's a that's a deadly combination. You're you're going to you're going to have a great chance to win a tournament every
0: week yeah so I was watching obviously the coverage from from back here on the east coast on Sunday evening and the thing that really struck me on was that uh it's easy to forget that these guys are human you know it's 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 really simple because we see them so often on television and you and I are fortunate enough to see them in person quite a bit and maybe get to know them but it's really easy to forget that things that happen outside the ropes for these players the stuff that happens on Sunday night and then Monday Tuesday Wednesday has such a huge effect on what happens Thursday through Sunday afternoon, when we see them on TV competing and trying to win golf tournaments, and um, the mental aspect of the game and just where they are with the rest of their life has a huge bearing on how well they're going to play. You know, it's not like you can sub out uh, your short game and call in you know somebody off the bench to to hit all of your chips and pitch shots because things are going you know with pretty tough at home. In Cameron Champ's case, learning that the person who introduced you to the game is not in a good way. And obviously he's not. And clearly we saw how emotional it was this victory for Cameron champ. He makes the last putt, his father's beside the green and I'm not going to say he breaks down, but it was really, really emotional. The embrace he had with his caddy was for a long time and kudos to golf channel for the coverage and not stepping on that moment. The announcers ate the microphone, didn't say a word for what felt like a solid minute and just let the images and the moment speak for itself, which sometimes unfortunately doesn't happen. But it just reminded me that, that life is a lot bigger than golf, even for people who play golf for a living and the emotions that can come out are sometimes just unbelievable stuff. You mentioned that there's a lot of work that needs to happen in Cameron's game in order for him to contend week in and week out when people see him hit, a three hundred seventy five yard drive. I mean, he might be the first guy in the PGA Tour to get two hundred mile an hour ball speed. He's he's on another another level from these guys. When you see him play, what what are the things that that really stand out to you? Is it the rawness of the short game? But when you see him, what do you what goes through your mind?
1: Well, he's he's just not taking advantage of that length when he's hitting. You know, he's Colin uh, Morikawa said, you know. He, if he if he keeps it in the fairway he's going to be able to hit nine iron and wedges when i'm hitting you know five irons and four irons and that, that's such a huge advantage in golf but he's he's blowing it because he, he's 160th in greens in regulation and he's he's 186 from yeah. fifty to 125 yards yep so that you know he's he's he, basically he's Dustin Johnson 10 years ago I was thinking, thinking the same thing
0: played. I was thinking the exact same thing absolutely explain what that means to people who may not be aware
1: yeah, so I mean Dustin Johnson used to do the same thing where he just didn't have a good wedge game and then he went out and got himself a trackman and started loving to predict you know was he hit did he hit that one 106 or 107 uh, and and really got good at that part of the game he Bec- became one of the better wedge players and all of a sudden he started winning a lot of golf tournaments a major championship and Sean Foley who is Cameron Champ's instructor says that's our you know that's our blueprint he kind of compared it to to the Fosbury flop you know once once Dick Fosbury went over the you know the the pole mm-hmm. uh, for the high jump you know yeah the high jump the way he does it and everybody started following that it took a lot less uh, took a lot less time for that High jump mark to go up and up and and so he thinks you know if it took if it took Dustin Johnson ten years to get to number one and and a major champion well it should only take five for Cameron Champ and you know Johnny Miller was out there be, at Silverado yesterday mm-hmm. and he said to me you know it, it might only take two years for him the way you know if he can just improve a, a notch here a notch there
0: what's what's interesting to me is that in, and you and I are both analytically minded when it comes to the way that we look at the game and try and figure out what's really happening. Some members of the media, and I'm not putting anybody down, are a lot more about what they see with their eyes rather than what the numbers might tell them. But when you just take a player like Cameron Champ or Dustin Johnson or Rory McIlroy or some of the guys with just prodigious length, they're numerically going to hit more shots from say 125, 130, and in because so many par fours become, you know, just basically driver and a wedge or a nine iron or whatever it happens to be that that kind of shot. And if you're one of those guys, you're doing yourself a real disservice. You're you're negating the advantage if you don't become skilled with the shots you're going to have to hit a lot more often. Um, if you know that you're going to be playing 14 non-par threes and that you're going to hit. Let's say eight drivers, and and there may be courses where you don't even get to do that when you're Cameron Champ kind of long. Um, But but if you're going to have so many of those shots over the course of a seventy two hole tournament, you've got to become good at that. Like you've got to dial in, as Dustin Johnson did, your wedge game because that is going to be the way that you take advantage, as you noted, of of the gift you have of of this length that you've you've earned, you've you've mastered the the technique you've got the athleticism to be able to pull it off at speed and now if if you are a subpar you know or if you're a poor wedge player if you're a poor player from say one fifty and in then what's the point of being long you're basically putting yourself in a position where you're going to hit bad shots you may as well lay back um, so yeah I, I, it'll be fascinating over the next twelve months twenty four months to see how much of an emphasis in his game and how much of development we see from Cameron Champ with that stuff it's really easy to fall in love with the distance I mean you know I, I get that and it's it's amazing to see but if you if you're a person who really wants to see Cameron Champ succeed you want to look on shot link at his approach numbers not just the strokes gain approach but you want to take a look and dive a little bit deeper and say what is he doing from 125 and in and then from 125 to 150 if those numbers, Creep into say the top fifty or sixty in the PGA Tour rankings, he's going to make a lot of money. He's going to be somebody that's going to be really, really good for a long time. I think.
1: Yeah, and let let's just put into what the final couple holes on seventeen. He he's only got about fifty five yards to that green, maybe even less, fifty yards. I think. And and he he you uh, know adrenaline adrenaline going through his veins. He says, but overcooks it. Makes a bogey and and so he's going to eighteen. What one, at one point was a five-stroke lead is he's now tied with Adam Hadwin. He's got a birdie this par five. Steps up and sends it three sixty-nine. It
0: was ridiculous. Thir-
1: Thirty-six yards, I think, longer than anyone during that day, or thirty-three yards, but yeah, significantly farther than anybody else. There were, were no had divots had where he
0: was there. standing. There were no yeah. divots out
1: there. But then he misses the green with an eight iron. Yeah. You know he's he's got to get it up and down and and clip that one beautifully with a little bit of check and uh you know gave him set himself up with under four feet for birdie. He's got that. He, there's just so much potential there. Uh, and you know, I, I think you know uh, Sean Foley has done a good job of like whispering in his ear and telling mm-hmm. him you know you you don't have to do this all in 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 the next twelve months. Let's let's. Let's. We have a, a blueprint. Yeah. Let's, let's. He's got let's his PGA tour card. card. He's, he's not and, going back to the Corn yeah. Ferry
0: tour. He's set for the next couple of years. He's in tournaments. His world rank, like his. He's got money. Everything is set. I think Foley is the perfect guy for him right now because he needs just a little bit of analytical learning to figure some things out. But he also needs a coach that's going to let him be who he is. I, I would not me, want to tinker with too much about what has gotten him to this point. You just want to add a subtle refinement and basically just have that little light bulb above his head go off and be like, Oh yeah, yeah, I can do all these things. I can keep playing this game. If I just put in 10 or 15% more time or effort, or you know, those guys sort of know what they're about, about, just honing this and developing feel with my wedges, with my nine iron so that I can get good enough with that or just get better then that's all I need to do. I don't have to reshape my game to move up a couple of levels.
1: What Foley said to me earlier this year when we talked about Cameron was that, look, he, he's not Tiger Woods. He hasn't won a ton of tournaments. He won, he won I think, once in college, uh, once, once on the Corn Ferry, and then you know, now twice on the PJ Tour. So you know, he's still learning how to win. The impressive thing is that when he's been there, he's two for two with a fifty-four hole lead. Yep. And he's... what he, what Johnny Miller said, I like that he said he's he was excited in the situation. That he wasn't nervous, and he looks very calm out there. Sure did. And and then the other thing that Foley said, I, which is a line I really like, is he says, "What you consider struggling, I consider growing." And you know, so while he had this series of time where he, he a long stretch, ten months without a top ten finish. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes you got to fail before you succeed. And, and you know, if he keeps playing like, like he did this week, we don't know whether this is going to be, whether this is the maturation process or if this is one week where there was so much else going on in his world that that he, you know, was able to, to just put it together for one week. Well, you know, that's to be determined. But exciting stuff for him. Uh, you know, he wanted to get to uh, Augusta. And, and be able to let his, his grandpa know that that was something that he did. And he called that one last gift for him. And, and I think that's pretty cool. I mean, it was a, it was a goosebump story.
0: It, uh, somebody else who last week had a lot of things going on. Um, Tony Romo shoots 70 on Thursday and I'll raise my hand and say, I am shocked that he was able to go out and do that. I don't, I didn't see based on his attempts to qualify for the U S open and some other things that he's done. Didn't see a, a 70 you know, in the, in the cards for him. Beats a number of different players. Now, obviously, he didn't shoot anywhere close to that on Friday. He misses the cut. He was in the booth um, at the Bears game on Sunday. What did you make of the round that he did shoot, and what do you think it means for Romo playing in potentially more PGA Tour events in the future?
1: Well, I was really impressed too. I mean, I you know in the pro, on the pro am Wednesday, I got to watch Steph Curry play, and and a lot of people that I was talking to were saying that Steph Curry probably had a better chance to make the cut than than Tony Romo. Um, you know that he might be able to beat him head to head. I, I, I th- it, it definitely brought a lot of extra interest and excitement to to a fall event that that needs something like that so agreed i kind of go i kind of go back and forth whether i'm whether i'm okay with it or not because these guys a lot of the young players or or even even the journeyman who who just got his card back uh they're they are desperate for starts Mm -hmm. and to try to especially this time of year with the first reshuffle to get a chance to get into the events. Well,
0: and the big dogs are usually going to be sitting out a lot more now. So with the reshuffle and with that, there's numerically going to be more opportunities between now and say Tory Pines, than there will right. be maybe the rest of the year combined.
1: Right. So, you know, these starts are precious, but the, that, the sponsor has a right to invite whoever they want. And, and I just think that, you know, Romo was at the point where he needed to show that he could, He could hang a little bit you know it's you can't just keep filling up spots shooting 74 and 78 and stuff and i mean the guy beat justin thomas and phil mickelson and a lot of other major champions and pga tour winners on that first day shooting 70 so uh, i think i think there will probably be a lot of tournament directors that uh gave him a call and said hey would you like to come to to our event because there's no doubt about it there were a ton of people with Tony Romo jerseys on mm-hmm. and and a huge a lot of people that came out to to watch golf just because Tony Romo was there and I do think that that seeing him seeing Steph Curry seeing Justin Timberlake play over in in uh yeah. Scotland yep it, it it brings some some interest to the more casual fan and and it, and there is the possibility for For some people to go, I want to go do that, whether they just go to their top golf. It's all part of that procession. There's got to be, you know, not everybody's grandfather is going to introduce them to golf. So I think stuff like this can help.
0: I think that uh, there's been a debate back and forth. And you bring up a couple of good points in there, Shoop, about um, the use and how different tournaments are going to handle sponsors exemptions. I've, I don't know that any one tournament should feel like it is their obligation to hand out their sponsor exemptions to players who are looking for their opportunities. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't. Um, my hometown event, my, my home game, if you will, is the Travelers Championship. And there's a long history of that tournament giving elite collegiate players and guys who have just turned pro, usually right after the U.S. Open, it'll be their first opportunity to play as a professional. Matthew Wolf was there this year. Victor Hovland was there this year. Justin Sa was there this year. Um, Markawa was there and and they, that's sort of like their calling card, but it doesn't have to be. It's their prerogative to do it. I think it can play out some long-term benefits for tournaments to do that, but there's also something to be said for putting asses in seats and getting buzz about your tournament. And if you're a fall event going up on the weekend Against football, the PGA Tour is already basically just like thrown in the towel and said, like, we don't want to compete and put our elite events up against football. But here you are, Safeway in Napa, California, West Coast time. Tournament finishes at what I think it was eight thirty or so Eastern. So I mean, you're now into the night, the the Sunday night football game at that point. Um, anything to create buzz and to create some interest. They're fortunate. Because they did have Mickelson and Justin Thomas and a couple other big name players. There are other events that are going on right about now that that have nothing fields in terms of like big name and star power. It's a challenge. Um, The tournament in Las Vegas will do well. The one in Sea Island will do well. But you know, it's that. That's pretty much it. I I totally get it, and I don't know that if I was a tournament director, if I wouldn't do the same thing. What helps you, I think, is. Tony Romo shooting a number legitimizes why you would want him to be there. If he had shot 77, 78, then you can say, look, okay, why do we need to see Romo again? If you want to bring Steph Curry in the Bay Area to a tournament, okay, local guy, good stick, has done a lot for golf, totally get it. No one would say anything about it. But now, Romo basically, by shooting that 70, I think legitimized another tournament or two, taking a chance and putting him in the field. Um, and maybe opens the door for some other players who, if over time they can show that they can play really well, it gives them at least one opportunity. I think to do it. Um, unfortunately, one of the players who didn't play well and who lost to Romo on Thursday was Phil Mickelson. He ended up missing the cut, and while Mickelson looked great on Instagram and on all the photos he, you know, was taking <laughs> with Steph Curry, I mean, he's gotten. Looks like he's physically in fantastic shape. His driving and his iron play were awful. I mean, he he was really not good. Based on that and sort of the way that Phil finished out the just-concluded 2018-19 season, what do you think is in store over the next, say, 12 months for Phil Mickelson? Are you
1: asking me what will Phil do next?
0: What will Phil do next? <laughs> Go ahead. There. I teed it right up for you.
1: You know, it's. I think it's going to be a fun thing to watch, as always, because... You know, I, I, I really thought I saw a, a down and out Phil Mickelson when he left, when he left uh, Northern Ireland and the, and a, and a miscut at the open championship. Mm-hmm. He, he was as low as I'd seen him in a long time and, and, and really didn't seem like he had a clue how to get out of this funk, but he showed up uh, in Napa with all sorts of confidence. And even though, uh, you know, he, he, had a poor round made a, a really had one bad hole where he shot a not where he had made a nine. And, uh, that really t- took him out of, out of any chances of really making the cut. But, you know, he kind of said, look, I'm working on this. I've got a lot of enthusiasm. I want it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to get out of this. Uh, he seemed like he had a bit more of a game plan. Now mm-hmm. he said he was talking about hitting, you know, working on a low cut. And I think he's, I think he's trying to do the right thing. I don't know, you know, Bill, one of the things you got to admire about him is he's so good at just letting the bad stuff go and and keeping confident and you know it, it almost you start to believe what he says that that <laughs> that everything's going to be all right. I mean, Here, have this little cup uh, of Kool
0: Aid I made. Go ahead. Have yeah, a sip.
1: exactly. So, I mean, it, it hasn't looked good for a while. I'd like to see some encouragement. I mean, if I'm Tiger Woods, I don't see how you pick him. I think you got that tough call where you say. Phil, I want you to be in, in uh, Australia with me, but I want you to uh, be in a, a vice captain of mine because I, I don't see how you can pick Phil Mickelson over Gary Woodland or Tony Finau or some of these guys who've had great seasons and are, and are, are playing really it, well right it, now.
0: It feels like a lot longer than whatever it is, like 10 months since he won a Pebble. I mean, it feels right. like he's a totally different player. And um, for GolfWeek.com, over the last couple of weeks, I was taking a look at the players who had the biggest – Improvements and also the biggest drops in all the major strokes gain categories from last season to the one that just concluded. Mickelson's basically his his long game absolutely fell off a cliff, and um, his putting also, which was very strong uh, throughout much of the season two years ago, was also while not awful, it went down precipitously. And I think at some points, you know, I criticized the selection of Sergio Garcia by the European Ryder Cup team a year ago, and and Garcia played very well. I mean, I have to eat my words on that when he, he, was, he was just fine. And Sergio Garcia is a topic for a whole different podcast, but I bring his name up because um, I think if you are seriously considering Phil Mickelson to be a player on the President's Cup team, based on what you've seen, you're selecting him for being the player that he was, not the player he is. And right now, Phil Mickelson is a player who is trying to, I think it appears, transition and find his game. I think there is still game left. I mean, Phil just won, again, in calendar year 2019. So he can't be that far gone. His body is transforming, and we've seen guys lose a bunch of weight. And I don't know that Mickelson's necessarily lost a ton of weight, but he looks different in person. I mean, you saw him. Mean, he just looks like a different guy. And sometimes it takes people a while to get everything synced up when your body's shape and composition is such that you know, it, it is what it is and then you, you can find a swing that works for you. Phil's swing was somewhat inconsistent. Full swing stuff was inconsistent to begin with. Now you just start reshaping and retooling his body, his energy levels, and he's got to coordinate that with his swing. Uh, Peter Costas was on the podcast two weeks ago and was basically saying that his swing mechanics aren't matching up properly. And, and, and you can go back folks and listen to that podcast and have Peter sort of explain it much better than I can on the fly. I'm not a, a swing guru, but there's a lot of things that are happening with Phil. And, and I just wonder if it's going to be sort of the ongoing story, as you mentioned, that what what is Phil going to do next? I have no idea. But if I'm picking a player for the President's Cup and wanting somebody who's going to earn points, I don't know that right now I, I feel comfortable and feel really confident that if I send Mickelson out there, I've got a better than fair chance of him bringing back a point when he walks in on after the match, and I don't know if if you were the captain, would you pick him to play?
1: I don't think so, unless he showed some life. I mean, he's he's going to play this, play Vegas, and and a few other events this fall to try to try to get it together. But um, he's going to have to he's going to have to do something significant. If I don't, I just don't see. You know, match play is a different animal. He brings a lot to the team, but I think maybe the streak ends for him with playing in every Presidents Cup and, and all these Ryder Cups. Um, you know, he's he's had a couple captains picks the past couple of years, so I, I think it might be time to get somebody else some experience of, of what that's like playing in playing in uh, international competition in advance of uh, wanting to try to re- regain the. The Ryder Cup next year,
0: not to make this whole podcast, you know, dorks are us about analytics. But one of my favorite lines in in the movie Moneyball is the comes out when the New York Mets organization scouts are in Billy Bean's house and they are talking to his parents and a young Billy Bean who's in high school and is a really elite five tool prospect. And they're explaining that the game basically tells everybody at some point that you can't play anymore. And some people get told that in Little League or in high school. Some people get told in college. Some people get told when they're 38 and their professional career is clearly at a close. Um, I think that Phil Mickelson still can still be successful. But one of the unique things about golf is that, especially if you have been elite, is that there is always an opportunity to play more. You know, Phil Mickelson is going to turn 50 in June of 2020. We're not that far away from that um so Phil can start to it's crazy start to play Champions Tour golf if he chooses i think that he stays on the US PGA tour for a long time um body willing and it certainly seems like it is willing but it, golf is funny that it never tells you you can't play anymore but your results and your skill set makes it so that it's pretty easy to tell you're not what you were and the numbers are sort of the cold hard truth of it but um I'll be fascinated like you to sort of see exactly what we get. Now, across the pond, uh, what I'm doing the count here, I think eight time zones away from where you are right now, the Dunhill Lynx Championship took place last week. We sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier. And Francis Victor Perez beats Matthew Southgate for the individual title. But the real story coming out of that tournament, which someday I want to play. I am telling the European tour right now. I'm raising my hand. Any opportunity to play a pro-am that involves King Barnes, Carnoustie, and the old course at St. Andrews, I'm all in. Um, But really, the shots were fired from Rory McIlroy, who, after the tournament came out, had a bunch of comments about courses being too easy on the European tour. He doesn't like the super low scores. Um, He walked back the comments on Instagram a little bit afterwards, and I'm going to quote him right here, basically saying, strategy, course management, and shot, shot making are an important aspect of tournament golf that are being slowly taken out of the game at the top level, not just in Europe, but worldwide. I would personally like to see tougher setups in Europe because it will produce better, more complete young players in the future, and that can only be good a good thing for the game and for our Ryder Cup chances. When you hear Rory talking about that stuff and you take a look around and you see low scores, do, do you think he has a point what, Where do, you know, from from his perspective about that the course setups are too easy, or do you think that was basically just him venting off? Where where do you stand on how courses are set up in terms of the level of difficulty and challenge that they're presenting today?
1: I thought he was spot on, except that his timing was was totally off, and that, that that's a week where you've gotta make the courses a little easier because you have amateurs playing. If you if you grew the rough and you know made the put the greens at 14 on a stint you know, it, it, five and a half hour rounds would take six and a half hours. I mean, it, 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 that particular event is not the week to make that, that argument, but yes, uh, we, we, there, they sh- there should be more strategy involved in how these guys play golf, not just bomb and gouge it. I would, you know, that's why there should be some more events where five, six under par is the winning score. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've been in a stretch of, uh, where you know seventeen under wins in in uh, on the PGA Tour in Silverado, and um we've we've seen some real. You you've had to shoot I think sixteen to twenty two under the last five six events on I the think PGA you're right. Tour. Yeah, if if you're gonna hoist that trophy at the end of the week, and and uh, you know, I it's interesting. I, I've been talking to players about course setup, and is it is it too hard? Is it too easy? Or is it just right? And it's Pretty universal acceptance by the players that that the, on the PGA Tour the the setup is about is generally about right and I think that's a, I'm a little disconcerted by that that they're all kind of in lockstep on that because you know I think there needs to be more variety in how in the tour courses and the way the courses are set up probably more rough uh, probably more you know thicker rough I don't know I I, I you know. We don't want to see the U.S. Open break out every week, mm-hmm. but it's become. I think there is this feeling on the PGA Tour that that birdies are what keep people happy. That that's what they want to see. They want to see low scoring. They want to see sixty twos and sixty fours. And that watching guys shoot par is not as interesting. But um, you know, I don't think that's actually really the case.
0: Well, it's, to me, Shoop, It's it's that the familiarity sort of breeds comfort that the, we've been going to, by and large, you know the, the same types of golf courses for a long, long time. I mean, uh, it's it's something where we get very comfortable going and, and the season rhythm and visiting the same places. You can pretty much mark your calendar that um, you know we're going back to Kapalua, then we're going to YLI, and the players, by and large, like YLI Country Club uh, on Honolulu because – it offers variety. I mean, it's deadpan flat, and that's sort of just a, the way that that, that that venue is, but the wind and the shaping of the golf course presents unique challenges. Then you head to the West Coast, and there is a little bit of variety there, but in terms of, like, you know, are players thirsting to play um, TPC Scottsdale? When you take out of the equation the circus atmosphere on 16, that's that's a pretty ho-hum place, and Torrey Pines has beautiful views, and is just, you know, a stunning venue visually to look at, but I don't hear anybody saying like, "Wow, the strategic aspects of Tory Pines right. South are, are really something that that get my juices flowing." Um, Pebble Beach is really special, and and I think that obviously that that will always be some place they like. The, uh, many of the Florida courses, yet another force carry par three over the water. Um, you know, it's then the, you start going back to the same places, and some of them are certainly worthy, but a lot of players, the elite ones. Are skipping some of the variety events that, for example, like Hilton Head or Colonial, which seem to be the two that are always brought up, that are the short short hitter friendly venues. But those are classic tracks. You know, we don't go back to Westchester Country Club anymore. We don't go to places like that because oftentimes the big hitters we just rip it apart. But those are also the players that oftentimes are skipping it. And if you're criticizing that, now to talk, you know, totally out of the other side of my mouth, um, golf. is is entertainment. And golf on TV especially is entertainment. And would I rather watch guys make birdies and eagles and shoot low scores and have the exciting theater around that? Or do I want two or three under par to, to win and guys to struggle? I, I, I'd like the variety of it, I suppose. But but birdies and eagles are more exciting to watch than than guys. I, I can go out and watch my own game <laughs> yeah, you know, to, to see guys struggle and to live in the pain. But I think that we're struggling to find the balance between a schedule that moves throughout the United States on, quote-unquote, tour-level venues. Um, we seem to be going back to the same places year after year, and you grow the rough, you take the rough down. You speed up the greens, you slow the greens. You have rainy one year, it's dry the next. Um, there's a, I think there is a lack of variety, but I don't know if this is, with everything else going on, if this is something that changes – if the PGA tour, or the European tour really care because yeah. you know, go, go ahead. Sorry.
1: I, I think part of the problem is whether if the European tour and, and really the PGA tour is probably just as guilty. They both sell out on these golf courses. If, if, if a sponsor brings a certain amount to the table, I mean, we've, we've seen Ryder cups at the K club and, 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 and just some of the, you know, some of the places that the, the, Ryder cup or some of the bigger events on the European tour tend yep. to go to, yep. it, it has to do with, you know, you can follow the money and even, you know, PGA tour. Uh, one of the things I can that constantly drives me nuts is that, uh, they played the bark, the, the Northern trust this year at, at Liberty national and, uh, nice facility, obviously beautiful it's, views. It's, it's TV good, loves to show it.
0: It's a good venue. Yeah. It's 50, a good venue.
1: 50 better courses oh. in the New York Metro area. Yep. I'm in the metropolitan area that that uh would be more interesting from a golf strategic standpoint if the, if that was a priority PJ Tour would be playing somewhere else that week and you know until until they make some changes until they're willing to to really whether you know make that make that a priority I think Rory's going to be waiting a long time and then the other part of it is it's a bit of a catch 22 because when they sometimes when they the PJ Tour does grow the rough up then the players, they say they want it, but then they complain yeah, about, they bitch it, and moan and about they, it and they don't go back to that tournament. And so the the tournaments are kind of they're There's something there. There's you know motivated in a way to to create a course where maybe sometimes 20 under is going to win because that's more what that's what the the majority of players seem to to prefer.
0: Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. I mean, if if you as somebody outside the robes, if you're listening to this and you want to know when the players are happy, and when they're not to listen, to them when they go back to, for example, some place like Ridgewood country club in New Jersey. So instead of going to Liberty national, you go probably like 10 or 15 miles away, which based on traffic is probably what two hours. I, I kid, but not by much, um, Ridgewood country club, the pros started showing up there, uh, in the mid two thousands, VJ Singh beat Sergio Garcia in a playoff at a Northern trust that was held there. Uh, I think about a decade ago. I want to say maybe 2007 or 2008, something like that. And um, the players to a man loved it. We were there a couple of years ago again. They loved it. Um, that facility, it, they create a composite course with stuff. But you're, you know, it's it's wonderful. It's great. And it's a classic venue. As, as Shoop, you said, there's 20 of that in and around the Met section. You know, you and I both have a lot of familiarity with the Met section. Like, you know, Imagine if they were able to do something I, I realize logistically if they were to go to Somerset Hills or if they were to go to some of these classic venues um, that some of them may have played, but most of them not, but they would fall in love with in a heartbeat. Yet we go to the venue that looks great on TV um, like Liberty national, but the golf course is, is yet another big ballpark that uh, is, is nothing to write home about in terms of the the shot value stuff. It's, it's a weird thing um, to, to me it's, I agree. It's not something that really comes up. How much also do you think right now, the way the courses are set up may or may not fall into being affected by the fact that the PGA tours TV contracts are going to be started to negotiated, you know, if they're not going already, but, but, but very soon, therefore, like, do you really want to have really difficult, low scoring scrambling to save par events? Or do you want to have fireworks and watching Cameron Chapman hit one 360 or 370 and Roy McIlroy drive it all over the place. That's got to be the stuff that's got to help TV ratings. Yes.
1: Yeah, I I think there's, that that might be, that's a bit of it as well. And and, and like I said, going back, the PGA tours in Detroit because Quicken Loans wanted to have their event there. So these things are, are a lot of times outside of the, there's, there's a lot, a lot goes into it. Yeah. A lot goes into where these events yeah, are played. We're, we're and, at the and, Tour
0: Championship in Eastlake because Coca-Cola wants it. Yeah, and that's why we're in Atlanta. So totally, it, it's 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 something that you know it's it's a it's a very complicated web of different forces that are at work. Um, I agree. Rory could have picked a better time and a different way to express that frustration, but it tells you how frustrated he must really be that when he shows up to play, he doesn't play a lot these days in Europe. But when he does. If if he has to vent, um, yeah, I mean, for example, like Pebble Beach, you're always going to have easy hole locations and a relatively easy setup when they play the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am because you've got AMs. If you tuck the pins and made it things really challenging, the rounds would take forever, as you said, and you know whatever. And Rory happened to go and play there with his dad, and that was what he got. It also sounds like the weather actually wasn't that bad, so any kind of a Lynx course under relatively benign conditions guys are going to shoot low scores what uh what what's going to be on tap for you next are you uh are you going to be taking to the friendly skies or are you going to be heading back to florida and uh and home for a little while after this
1: yeah i get to go home for a little while and uh but not too long i'm, I'm headed on a, a golf a golf trip to morocco of all places gonna gonna play a little golf in marrakesh and rabat and uh experience how does that part one, of the world how
0: does one book a tea time in morocco tell me about this trip
1: well you know it's something i, I kind of had on the books uh to to go to a it's kind of a big golf travel tourism conference over there okay and then some extended golf yeah uh i've, I've been to the king of trophy once once upon a time and uh so played over in over there before there's an incra- uh, what I thought a, a great Robert Trent Jones course that they they usually use in Rabat for that, um, and it's it's like you're it feels like I'm playing the uh, the Dunes Club in Myrtle Beach, but you're in Morocco. It's it's pretty pretty awesome. Uh, looking forward to getting back to that part of the world. Great people over there, and uh, it should be should be a cool trip. Good couscous
0: and tagine. That'd be nice. I could, I could dig <laughs> exactly. on some of that.
1: I could definitely dig on some of that. All
0: right, if people want to follow you on uh, Instagram, that Twitter thing or whatever, how do, how do people follow you on social media?
1: I'm at, at, uh, at Golf Shoe Pack, I think. You think? Or just at Adam Shoe Pack.
0: Well, there's a real savvy play by an industry veteran. Add hey. Adam,
1: I think it's just at Adam Shoe Pack, actually.
0: You might have to Google it, folks. I'm trying to make the guy look good. <laughs> I'm trying to help his audience and his reach, and you can only do so much with what you got. But uh, Adam, I appreciate you waking up early on the West Coast. Enjoy the rest of your time out in California, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Good to be back podcasting with you. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. You got it.